Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today my guest is Philip Yancey. I know you probably know Philip from his now classic book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, or any of his other titles that he's written through the years. His latest book is a reflective memoir that focuses primarily on his childhood and early adulthood called Where the Light Fell. Uh, Philip, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Josh. Now, I have to imagine that most of my audience knows your name, even if they may not know anything else about you. So by way of introduction, um, t- tell us a bit about your life and ministry and why people may have may be familiar with who you are. I'm a freelance writer, full-time freelance writer, and there aren't too many of us out here <laughs> making a living at it. I started as a magazine journalist long, long time ago, back in the 1970s, a youth magazine called Campus Life. And then I was associated with Christianity Today magazine for years, wrote a column on the back page of that, while also writing a bunch of books. I started with Where is Government It Hurts, and then a few books with Dr. Paul Brand, and then books like What's Amazing About Grace, you mentioned, and The Jesus I Never Know, and uh, Prayer. So... I feel very blessed if I want to explore a topic, I just choose to write a book about it, and then I can spend a whole year immersed in that topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So wh- Where the Light Fell, is it, it, it focuses on your childhood, on your early adulthood, sort of your upbringing, uh, particularly your upbringing as regards religion and faith. Uh, you grew up in a very strict fundamentalist setting. So sort of take us through what that was like. Like, I don't want to spoil the whole memoir in this interview, but to give some idea of what the book is about and who you are, uh, let, let's let's start there. Sure. On the map of um, left to right, I suppose you'd say, in Christian circles, I was somewhere to the right of Bob Jones University. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very legalistic um uh, narrow-minded church we we actually lived on the church property in a trailer mm-hmm. we were very poor i was raised by a widow so we could never get away from it we we're all we we're surrounded by every time the doors open we we're expected to be there things weren't nearly as political in churches back then in fact we were pretty separate we thought of ourselves as uh, separated out from people around us. We would sing songs like, this world is not my home, I'm just mm-hmm. a pass it through. And there was a lot of emphasis on on getting saved so you can go to heaven. And we heard that over and over again, even though the people in my church, small little church, had all gone forward and received Jesus a number of times. We kept hearing that same sermon over and over. That seemed to be the main point of church. Mm-hmm. What, what was that experience like in the sense that you feel very you write about feeling very set apart from the rest of your community and and some of that was socioeconomics uh, growing up in poverty but Mm -hmm. a lot of it was related to faith Um, how did you feel like in that in that era of you know 1950s 1960s that how, how fundamentalism worked within or worked and maybe not work with may not be the right word, but like um, how how it was how it viewed the culture and how the culture viewed it. Mm-hmm. 
when I think back on my own reactions, the primary emotions that come to the foreground are fear and shame. It seems like we always had something mm -hmm. to fear. Uh, the first time I heard about politics in church was when John F. Kennedy was running for president and everybody mm -hmm. in the church got a copy of if America elects a Catholic president, you know, mm -hmm. it's going to be the end of the world. The Pope's going to run our foreign policy and all these terrible things. And of course, this was the Cold War. That was a legitimate fear. We had missile tests going off all the time between Russia and the United States. And uh, so the fear of communism and then the fear of Y2K came along, you know, the whole world was going to shut down because of of the changeover from one century to another. Just one thing to fear after another. HIV, AIDS, homosexual, mm -hmm. secular humanism, um, mm -hmm. Supreme Court, the United Nations, a lot of fear. And then we feel we viewed ourselves as, well, I'd say with a kind of moral superior superiority hmm. we were different kind of people we didn't go to movies we didn't bowl we didn't dance we didn't do a lot of things that most people enjoyed and i didn't feel particularly deprived growing up like that i felt we were right and they were wrong and meanwhile they looked at people around us i think looked on us as almost like you would look on a cult you know hmm. these people like i couldn't go to movies so Everybody in my literature class in high school went to see this new movie, Othello, and I couldn't go. So I had to stay home and write a paper on Jeffrey Chaucer. Well, that's <laughs> fun. <laughs> and um, people kind of ribbed me about that. But we were set apart, very definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, fundamentalism has changed over the past 50 years. But, I mean, it, it still exists. Like you mentioned Bob Jones. Uh, you know, Bob Jones University is still a university that exists. Uh, and, yes, it is. Uh, you know, Pensacola Christian College as well is sort of in that same milieu. Um, how how has I know that you're not you're no longer in that sphere, but what I, what I'm hearing from you is that it was very very much fear based. Uh, we still have fundamentalism today. How how is it the same? How is it different? You think? Well, you mentioned Bob Jones. Uh, things have changed there. When we, when I was growing up, it was it was completely segregated. They allowed no African American students, and then later, mainly because of court orders, they had to admit people of other races. But then they had rules against dating, interracial dating, and at one point they applied for a permit to have a machine gun at the front gate. I remember that very clearly when I was in high school. So. It, that kind of fundamentalism is a bit like uh, we've got a castle here. We're going to pull up the moat or pull up the drawbridge over the moat. We're going to be away from those people. We're not going to be polluted by them. And we're going to teach ourselves and raise our kids and, and um, withdraw as much as possible mm -hmm. from society. Do the race, issue, race mm -hmm. issue has changed a lot. Um, it would be illegal to do the kinds of things that churches were doing back then, keeping people of other races out. And uh, certainly Bob Jones lost that, lost that battle. Mm -hmm. What, what do you feel like the appeal is? Uh, Cause obviously both of your parents were steeped in, in that culture. Uh, mm -hmm. What was the appeal for them 
in why they chose that avenue of belief? There's a certain security in a tight structure like that. And it, it would be true not just of, of um, Christians in America. I mean, you can go to other countries and see other religions that are just as strict or even more strict. There's something very dependent about saying, I'll let other people decide what's right and what's wrong, and all I have to do is follow the rules. In a sense, for example, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the, were the fundamentalists. They were the ones that had identified 613 laws in the Old Testament and, and then all these different kind of sub-laws that they added to them. And they judged their morality they didn't go around feeling weird. They, they felt superior. Jesus told the story of the publican or the tax collector and the Pharisee, and the publican was very honest. Lord, help me. I need you. And the, and the Pharisee, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that publican over there, that tax collector. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the danger of fundamentalism. Is they don't go around feeling inferior. In fact, in my experience, very often they go around feeling superior. Mm. It's harder. It's harder when you're a kid because you do stand out and people make fun of you. But there's also a kind of security. We we know the truth. Nobody else does. Mm-hmm. Now, as you started to grow up and you began to question some of the the, the type of faith that you were saturated in, what what were some pivotal moments? for you as you began to see that, that you know maybe this isn't maybe this isn't quite right the biggest one for me did revolve around race mm-hmm. i was in high school between 1961 and 1966 and that was the heart of the civil rights mm-hmm. movement that's right. when uh, of course a couple of years later martin luther king was killed but that, that was when the Freedom Riders were going through Alabama and Mississippi, and and there were protests and attempts to integrate stores and churches even in Atlanta, where I was. And I was taught in church that black people were inferior. They were cursed by God. This weird scene back in Genesis 9 where one of uh, something weird is going on. We don't have many details there, but Noah was... Uh, exposed in front of his sons and he was angry about whatever happened and he cursed one of the grandsons. Well, one of the sons, the grandson was named Ham and uh, we were told that means burnt black and his punishment was to have to serve in the tents of Shem and from the pulpit. We said, we were told by the pastors that person of color, a black person, is a servant. They're good at that. They're good at being a waiter, waitress. They could never be a CEO of a company. And you're a kid, you know, you don't know the difference. And people tell you that and you're surrounded by Christians. Well, I won a fellowship in high school at what was then called the Communicable Disease Center. It's now the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, where a lot of people work who, who you hear, you see on TV talking about the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And it's a very sophisticated laboratory. I knew my supervisor was a, an esteemed PhD from an Ivy League school, specialist in staining bacteria techniques. So I 
tried to read papers that he had written. I had no idea what they were saying because it was way above <laughs> me. <laughs> but I was impressed by this guy, and I showed up my first day of work. I got my photo badge at the door, you know, scared high school kid in this esteemed institution. And the guard takes me to this office, knocks on the door, the door opens, and lo and behold, this man, Dr. Cherry, is an African-American person. And bells just went off all over. Wait a minute. My church has lied to me. My church said you couldn't be a person like this in a job like that. And that became a, a true crisis of faith for me, frankly. Mm -hmm. Because if the church was wrong about that, maybe they were wrong about the Bible. Maybe they were wrong about Jesus. And, you know, we need to be careful when we speak for God. We better be sure that we're right. Because several times in my life, I've had people around me speak for God, and I found out they were flat out wrong, sometimes with drastic consequences. Yeah. This this is really the hardest thing that I'm seeing that still <coughs> it, it, it still plays today, and I'm, I'm seeing it right now in the evangelical church, mm. where there are kids who grew up in the church, and they're leaving it now because of how the church has responded to issues of race, gender, sexuality, immigration, poverty, and you know, the list goes on. Um, science. Science. Yes, yes, yes. There's, there's all, all of these things that it, it's, it's not just a generational divide, but uh, maybe I guess my experience in it has largely been that. To see that, and I think that with the pandemic and with with the pandemic, people who had sort of existed at their church and maybe they weren't quite happy with it or quite happy with the way that church leaders, you know, thought about certain topics. Um, it was just sort of like, this is the habit that you go to church every Sunday. And then the pandemic changed everything. And and then people stopped going to church and realized that they weren't missing anything mm -hmm. or they felt more at home and, you know, more theologically. Um, they, they, they realized how how big the rift was once they were able to step back from the situation. And right. I, I'm thinking of, you know, so I'm reading the book and I'm thinking of your story and, and your story, your distancing from your fundamentalist upbringing is probably happened a little more gradually than a lot of people a lot of a lot of evangelicals or you know the term ex-evangelicals people who've left the evangelical church um the 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 trick that i'm seeing and this is i think this is the difficulty for a lot of people is how do you keep your faith in jesus even as these people who you know, you've you've grown up in this church, and, and these people, their their faith, their faith is genuine. They they earnestly, honestly believe what they believe, and part of what they believe is all these things about Jesus. So how do you separate that? I want to keep this belief about Jesus, but I I have to say that these things about race and in immigration all all of these other issues that those have to be torn out how do you how do you tear out the toxic elements but keep jesus 
Boy, that is the challenge of the church in the United States, at least. I know you're in the UK right now, Josh. It'd be interesting to to hear when you come back how it's different over there. But um, I, I think in the, in America we do have a unique situation because until recently it was a strongly majority Christian country. Mm-hmm. Even around the turn of the century, seventy percent of people were members of churches. Now, for the first time ever, it's below 50%. It's like 47%. And there are Christians who who feel, wait a minute, this this used to be our playing field, and somebody's taking it away from us. And they they feel like an entitlement. And they, they don't realize that for most of all of history, the church or God's people have been, in a sense, in exile. We've been in the city of God, but also the city of man, the city of, you know, the civic area around us. And people have this vision of what a Christian country used to be like and court rulings and culture changes, and they don't like it and they're angry. But this is not the way to win people over. I think of the pandemic. If there was ever a time the church should have stood up and said, Here's a tragedy that's virtually affecting everybody on Earth, hmm. one way or another, either economically or directly. We should be leading the front in compassionate response. And instead, I, I heard a lot of anger and a lot of fear and a lot of protest. And, you know, churches were angry because there was a lockdown where you could meet together in certain places and they would sue the government. And... That just doesn't help. It seems to me, as when I look at history, what we should be striving to do is show the Jesus way so that people would say, I'd like to be like those people. <laughs> They've got something I don't have. I want to be one of them. And instead, we kind of pull back the, pull back in a circle the uh, wagons in a, mm-hmm. in a way and say, we're not going to let them win. We're going we're gonna to fight back. Mm-hmm. And that is that is not usually an effective evangelism technique. It seems like the 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 theme, the common thread is is when we become insular and separate ourselves from the world, we just don't. We're not any use to it anymore. We're not any light to it. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and the statistic I heard, I can't vouch for this, but the one I've heard is that about 50% of young people who are raised in evangelical homes, by the time they get out of college, about 50% have abandoned that faith. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, not everybody goes to college, but it's easier to track those. And some of them come back, especially when they have families of their own, they have children, and they face questions about what should I teach them about God and what should they believe? But many of them don't. And one reason is exactly what you're saying. The, the attitude, they see Christians as, as this, basically an angry lobby group, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. an angry political slice. Yeah, I think for some people, I, I like that you, you, when you, we talked about um, tracking college kids, it, it kind of fits in with that sort of anti-education bent that fundamentalism right. can have. Is that you know going to college makes you anti-Christian, makes you liberal, makes you whatever, uh, and and in a sense it, it really is 
it's it's not so much the education of the academics, uh, but the education of of getting out of the insular um, community of the, the the insular culture of fundamentalism and mm-hmm. being a part of this larger culture. So you know, for you as you got older and you started to to become a part of this larger culture, you began to see other areas of the world. You began to see um, other, other, uh, you know, denominations of Christianity that weren't quite so extreme as yours. Um, what, you know, I, I think there's, there's a point in the book where you're talking about, you end up going to Wheaton. I think it, I think it is. Um, what was the change in, in your mind from moving towards, cause Wheaton is still pretty conservative. Um, you know, would probably be considered evangelical, what was the change in your in your mind as you're growing up that you just made this shift toward um, toward something that's that's still conservative but not quite so extreme as your upbringing? Mm-hmm. For me, books played a, a large role. Mm-hmm. They were my windows to another world. I. I describe where I live here. We were in this aluminum trailer, not very big, eight feet wide, 48 feet long, about the size of some people's campers that they pull behind their pickup truck. That's where we lived, a family of three. My mother, she was a widow, and my brother and I. And we were actually on church property. And it felt like every time I left the outside world and entered that property, it was like I was going into this little narrow metal box. which it literally was, and it felt that way um, just, just as an environment. And when I would move away from that box, then I realized the whole world is not like that. Mm-hmm. And I was exposed to um, different ways of looking at the world. I, I remember I'm, we've mentioned race, and I remember what an impact it had on me to read the book Black Like Me, by John Howard Griffin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was a very brave journalist, white man, who wanted to see what it was like to be a black person. So he found, <clears throat> excuse me, he found a way to treat his skin to turn it dark. And here was the very same man, same education, same culture, but now he had dark skin, and, and instead of being treated like a gentleman, he was treated like an animal with hostility and w- with hate. And that was an eye-opening book for me, and I, I could, I began to step outside of my own little group and realize I probably would have done that too last year, you know, right. because I, I bought the, I drank the Kool-Aid of the people mm-hmm. around me, mm-hmm. and, um, the other thing I had going for me in a way was watching my brother. My brother, of course, grew up in the same environment. He had a different response. He decided to be mm-hmm. completely free. So he went to university, but uh, they can't make me graduate. So he dropped out <laughs> and he became a hippie and he wanted to expand his mind in drugs. And instead of becoming a concert pianist, he became a piano tuner playing the same notes over and over again and went through oh, a lot of women and a lot of addictions. And I saw how what he thought was freedom turned into, kind of, into a kind of slavery for him. He was... He was addicted. That's what addiction is a form of slavery. So throwing everything out, 
was not the solution. And being just like all the people I was brought up around was not the solution. I had to find my own way. And I, I found some very healthy people uh, through God's grace who showed me that middle way, gracious, graceful people, and uh, was able to work out my beliefs in print. That's what I've been doing for 40 years. Mm -hmm. I pick up one topic after another and explore. Well, it wasn't like I was taught. So what can I believe about Jesus? What can I believe about prayer, grace, those kind of issues? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been a lifelong journey. And, and frankly, we all go through that. You know, there are very few people who believe exactly the same thing their parents did or see the world in exactly the same way. We, we have to just, we have to find that path for ourselves. Mm. You you've talked about uh, your your mother, and one of the one of the things that that really impacted me the most about the book was seeing your relationship with her, and it, it made me think of the number of people that I know who have similarly complex relationships with their family. Mm. Uh, because of these very same things, because of abuse couched in religious terms, um, right. what what advice would you have for someone who is trying to navigate a relationship like that? Boy, I guess I don't have a, a formula, a generic word mm -hmm. of advice I would apply to everybody. It does, as you say, it does get complex, but my brother and I had very different techniques. My brother would would take on my mother and until you reach a certain late teenage year you're always going to lose you're the kid you're the adult and often they're bigger and stronger and, and uh, especially if they're using physical violence and i had a different technique i it, i became kind of deceitful i just hid who i was and and tried to erect a shell around myself so that People couldn't get to me and didn't know the truth, you know, and that wasn't healthy, but it, it was the survival mechanism. And I understand, uh, you know, kids growing up like that, some of them choose very destructive ways of coping, like self-harming, hurting mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. And and I understand where that comes from. Um, and it, they need help. It, but it's so hard in my case and in so many cases other people don't know what's really going on behind the closed doors of your home. And so my mother was viewed as this very holy, um, righteous, self-sacrificing Bible teacher, which she was. But she had some unresolved stuff in her own life, and she kind of took it out on, on her kids in, in, a, in a very extreme way. So I just hesitate to give advice because some of these kids, especially they really need a trusted mentor. I would just say to the healthy people in church, look out for these kids. You can sometimes mm -hmm. tell by the way they hang their heads, never look you in the eye, kind of slump in, slump out, and um, find one of them. There, I know organizations that that get fathers to volunteer going around looking for kids to, to almost adopt as foster kids, just especially those in single-family homes. Mm-hmm. And you know, as an as an adult, you, I, I, I you, you kind of write write in the book. You still maintained a relationship 
with your with your mother throughout you know your adult years uh and you you sort of learned some of the reasons some some of the traumas behind her behavior that you know hurt mm-hmm. people hurt people hurt people um yeah. what you know coming to her you know because you, you may be thinking I'm, I'm an adult you know you could have walked away from that relationship entirely and said it's toxic it's unredeemable i have to step away from it um but there, there was a sense in which you still you kept that relationship going and open even if it was messy um you know how 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 is that relationship for you in your later adult years Hmm. once again i used my brother as a he was kind of the pioneer because he did cut off all relations and they haven't seen each other in now 51 years so there were just three in our family, a mother and, and two sons. He's a little older. And and those two have not seen each other. Actually, Josh, after I turned in the book manuscript, I got them on the telephone twice. The first time in 51 years, they've heard each other's voice. Wow. It didn't go particularly well, but it was baby step, you know, and, and may continue. So, so I, I, I could see... In my brother's response, that's not healthy. She kind of, she still lives inside him, kind of haunting him. He he was unable to forgive her for things. Now she didn't apologize, but still, if you don't forgive, it affects you. It's like Anne Lamott says, it's not forgiving is like eating rat poison and expecting mm-hmm. the other person to die. You know, you're the one who gets affected by that. So yeah. I didn't I didn't want to be like that, and I did get to know her own family upbringing and it was just as distorted and dysfunctional as ours, probably worse. And so I, I learned, um, I, I would guess first pity for her and then compassion true compassion. And that did take some time. And it, you know, it's not a perfect relationship. She doesn't read my books and probably disapproves of a lot of things about me. Um, but I, we did, we put some physical distance. I live in Colorado. She lives in Georgia. And I think that helps. If I had stayed in Georgia, it would be much more of a problem, much more mm-hmm. complicated situation. Yeah. Yeah. Near the, near the end of the book, um, and we're just kind of keeping on with that theme of relationships. You, you, you write about being an adult and sort of going back to, to all of your childhood places and mm. meeting with some of the figures from your childhood, including going to the, I think it was the final service of the church that you grew up in. Uh, having having had your distance from that world, what was it like to go back into it and, and experience it as an adult? Yeah, I hadn't been in an environment like that for 35 years, I think, by the time I went back. And the first thing that struck me was um, these people aren't as large as I thought they were. <laughs> I was a kid when I went to that church. And and now they're middle-aged, they're kind of paunchy, they're balding, and it's just a little glimpse of a, a time capsule almost. 
And then when the pastor got up, the pastor who so often talked about hell and punishment and sin, uh, one one phrase went through my mind. Um, the name of the church is Faith, Faith Baptist Church. And I thought, oh, Faith, where is thy sting? <laughs> Which was actually, you know, it's, it's from the Apostle Paul talking mm-hmm. about death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Right. Because I, re- I remember being under that that cloud of fear uh, every time I would walk into church. And it, I didn't feel it anymore. I, w- it was, I wasn't attracted to it. It wasn't appealing to me. And I, w- I wasn't scared anymore. I've learned to know a God of grace and love, the God who Jesus portrays as a, a loving father who goes out every night and scans the horizon could this be the day my my son comes home? And um, so I I felt that the, the fear had gone, and uh, that was that was a good feeling. On that same tour, as you probably read, I went to some people who had been really wounded, especially mm-hmm. uh, African Americans, people who had been turned down, not allowed to come to our church. The kids weren't allowed in in our kindergarten. And just kind of apologized. And actually, the churches themselves had apologized. One, one of them particularly had a, a meeting of repentance where they invited people that they had offended over the years. And it was a, a weight had lifted. It, it, the issue, though, is that not everybody emerges from that environment intact. Not everybody right. survives. So I I can look back with almost nostalgia over some of the things and joke about it and write about it or whatever, but it's not a threat to me anymore. But there are people like my brother who are still dominated by that pathology mm-hmm. that we were raised under. And um, I I feel for them. There are all these people who stood up at that final service talking about how they met God in this church. And, and, I, and that was true. I mean, look at their lives. They, they did change. But there was a parade of people not present, my brother being at the head of that parade, who could stand up and say, I lost God at this church. I've never been able to clean up the image of God that this church gave me of this big bully in the sky. And I I feel bad for those people. And I hope some of them read this book because there is hope beyond that kind of fear-based religion. Mm-hmm. That sort of plays into the title of the book, I think, Where the Light Fell. Uh, can you talk mm. about how you decided on that title for the book? Right. It's derived from a quote by St. Augustine who said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on where the light fell. And that just struck me as very appropriate because I had been scorched by the sun. <laughs> and if the sun is God and truth, I was so saturated in it, going every time the church doors were open and living on the church property with a mother who's a Bible teacher and and all this toxic religion going around me. And there is no way I could have I could have been attracted to God by a gospel tract or the Bible study or Billy Graham rally or something like that. You know, that was religious stuff that had had failed me badly. Mm-hmm. And 
but I could look on where the light fell. And for me, the things that brought me back to some faith were three things. I identify uh, the, the beauties of nature, the glories of nature. There was always my refuge when things were too bad at home. I'd just go for a walk in the woods and, and wanted to be an entomologist and insect collector for years. And uh, music, classical music. My brother was a great musician. I was a very amateurish, but at least I appreciated good music, and then romantic love. And as I experienced each of these things, and I realized the church really misrepresented God to me. He's not that cosmic bully. God is a God of beauty and art and order and compassion and love. And I began to experience those things, but I wasn't sure what to believe at the time. I I often quote this this statement from G.K. Chesterton, who said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a deep sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt. I, I was sensing good things. I was melting. I was becoming much more of a warm human being. And But I had no one to thank. And I, I it started me on the quest of wanting to know that God, not the God that, that I had feared all those years. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that exploration has, is what's led to all of your books, all of your mm. all, of, all of your writing has been trying to find that and exploring yeah. faith outside of those boundaries. Was that a was that a conscious decision for you at the beginning of your career, or like, was there a moment in your career where you realized, oh, this is why I'm writing these things? Um, it was conscious. It, it was, I still had all these questions swirling around in my head. The, the first book I wrote was, where is God when it hurts? And that's a question we all have, you know, mm -hmm. if God is loving and powerful, then why do these terrible things happen? Like a global pandemic, explain that one. And so I wanted to find out what other people say, what the Bible says. I wanted to find out. I knew what happened if you had the wrong conclusion. And I tell the story in the book about people who believed that my father would be healed mm -hmm. when he was in an iron lung with polio. And they prayed for him and became convinced he would be healed against medical advice, had him removed from the iron lung, and he died. So the, the things we believe about things like pain and suffering, are they're really important to get right. And the things when people say, God told me that he would be healed, it's really important to, that it was really God who told you that. And I had seen both sides of that. And I wanted to find out who can I trust? You know, mm -hmm. what can I count on? Because people on television are telling you that just say the right prayer and you'll be healed of anything. And here my father died right. with a lot of people praying for him. So that was a question. And, and then over time, I wanted to know, okay, Jesus wasn't... Uh, that Mr. Rogers type figure that I was raised in Sunday school to, to believe in, what was Jesus like? And I, I feel privileged. We all have questions like that, but most people have jobs and they don't think about them all day long. But that's my job. My job was I could just choose a topic and write a book about it. Yeah. And um, it's, I've loved that. And it's been my, my career has been one of rediscovery, kind of like, finding an old icon or something like that and it's covered with mud and grime and you know there's something really valuable and important and revealing underneath it 
but you have to scrub and scrub and scrub to find out what that was. And I've been doing that in my writing. So I, I may end up, you know, not that far from where I started, but I, it's a lot of work to peel away. Okay. What, what should I keep and what should I discard? Right. So you've been writing these books for, you know, years, years and years now, and they've all been pretty, you know, thematically aligned and you tell a bit of your story, um, through those, through those books. And this book sort of, in a, in a way for me, as I'm reading it, I'm just like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing the arc of your career mm. and, you know, putting it into perspective of this is, you know, this, this is why these things have been important to you. Uh, what, what made it the right time now for you to tell this story about yourself? I've waited a long time. Most of my books have, they're the same style. I call them mm-hmm. personal pilgrimage essays. So I'll take a topic that I've just been talking about and just write, this is my story. I used to think the Old Testament was boring and and uh, repetitive. And and then I got into it and I discovered actually there's a lot I can learn from it. So that's my pilgrimage. I used to think Jesus was this and now that. And I didn't experience grace growing up, so what is it? And it is coming to terms, reordering, really, reordering the faith that I was handed as a child. And this is different. It's a book of, it's a story. And I had to work very hard. It's so easy for me to flip into commentary and analysis. And and that's not a good memoir. A memoir mm-hmm. is a, a story that drags you along much like a novel, the techniques of fiction. And so I, I've i been studying. I read a whole bunch of memoirs just trying to figure out how it worked. And there were family complications as well, so I was in no hurry to write it. I had, I had gone through the topics and things I wanted to write about. I didn't have a burning one left that I wanted, oh, I've got to write about this. And also, I had this life-threatening automobile accident that where I was in a Ford Explorer here on a mountain in Colorado and flipped over five different times and ended up with a broken neck, and, and they weren't sure I, I would live. And I faced that and asked myself, what have I not been able to do yet that I, that I really put a, feel I was put on Earth to do? And this was at the top of the list. In fact, it was mm-hmm. almost alone at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I've, I've got to take it seriously. I've got to, I've got to start doing this. And I was continuing to write other books at the time, but I would interview and take notes and research and just make sure I got the story right. It, yeah. it, I, I describe it as a prequel mm-hmm. uh, because, as you say, when you read this, you understood why I wrote the things that I did. And I, I'm sure people who, who have read my other books may think, oh, he had an easy existence. He just kind of, <laughs> you know, took his uh, little Sunday school Bible teaching classes and then gradually went to a Bible college and then sat down and write all these things that other people should believe. No, no, it was it was faith hardly, hardly earned. <laughs> With difficulty and hardly won, but um, uh, I came down on the side of grace. I changed a lot, 
And this fills in the, the story of why I believe what I do, not just what I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's uh, mem- memoir is, is such a powerful thing. You know, our, the website that this podcast is a part of is Life is Story. And, uh, you know, we do fiction, nonfiction, but memoir really stands out as, you know, this is true story and learning and seeing how other lives um, have been and what they've gone through and the lessons mm-hmm. that they've learned from it. Uh, getting getting to live someone else's life through their eyes mm-hmm. and, and learn their lessons, um, I think really it helps it helps you gain that perspective that you can't get otherwise and it's it's different from the other books that you've written uh, but it's still very personal and i think that i think that it's going to be you know life-changing um well philip i want to thank you so much for your time uh for being on the podcast uh, again the book is where the light fell uh by philip yancey and it is out it's out now uh, in stores so you can get it from Wherever you buy your books from, I'm sure that you can find it. Um, it's a it's a excellent story. It's 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 one of those that you have to take your time to read to really mm-hmm. understand, uh, to really to really get through. And I think that if you've read any of other of uh, Philip's books, you're going to have a deeper. They're going to seem deeper and richer and more nuanced after having read this. Mm. Well, thank you for your attention, for your care and, and love of books, Josh and. What you said about memoir, I'll just close by saying, I learned in reading other memoirs that you read them not just to learn about somebody else, you read them to learn about yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I put it out there as raw and as vulnerably as I could, because I know that there are going to be people reading this who have had, who have their own stories of abuse and of crazy families and crazy churches, and they don't know where to go after that. And I, I did find a, a survival way, <laughs> and, and I hope others take hope from the fact that probably my family and my church were, were likely more extreme than what they went through, but it can be redeemed. I look back, and nothing got wasted. God used it all, and I'm, I'm really grateful for my life.